and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2023 in review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. For the fourth and final episode of 2023 in review, I've decided to cover what is easily one of my favorite things to talk about. And based on the reactions to these episodes, I'm guessing it's yours as well. Las Vegas history. Over the past year, I was able to cover some very cool parts of Las Vegas history, and I was fortunate enough to be joined by some incredible guests for these conversations. Enjoy. When you think of entertainment legends in Las Vegas, there are some names that instantly come to mind, like the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr., or Mr. Las Vegas himself, Wayne Newton, who's been headlining in Vegas since the mid-1960s. And of course, there's the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, who sold out a record 636 performances at the International Hotel, which later became the Las Vegas Hilton. But one performer made his mark long before any of those people. Some might even say he paved the way not only for those legends, but for the massive residencies that would come much later. That performer is Liberace. On episode number 140 of the podcast, I was joined by Claire White, Director of Education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. Before she joined the Mob Museum, though, Claire spent several years working at the now-closed Liberace Museum, where she learned all about the long and storied career of Mr. Showmanship. One of the things Claire and I talked about during our conversation was how Liberace never seemed to take himself too seriously, and that when people laughed at him, he didn't seem to care all that much. It was almost like he was in on the joke himself. Liberace was the epitome of being in on the joke. He loved it. He loved the attention. He loved the excess. He loved the fact that he could be this guy out there in public wearing, you know, literally eight rings at a time um, and a giant diamond encrusted piano shaped watch and that he could go to, you know, antique sales and everyone would be like, oh, it's just Liberace dropping another, you know, 100,000 on antiques. He loved it. He curated his persona so specifically. Um, and and the the appearances that you mentioned, I mean, oh my gosh, him playing uh, twins on Batman, incredible for anyone who's not seen it, which I would assume is the majority of your listeners and the majority of <laughs> People in 2023, definitely worth seeing. Um, Muppet Show, another great example. Uh, Liberace's concert with the birds on the Muppet Show is some of the weirdest psychedelic fever art uh, in the history of the Muppets, which is truly saying something because if, if you are a if you've watched some 70s and 80s Muppet shows, I mean, it's weird all the time. And Liberace took it to the next level. Um, he, you know, he knew, he knew that he was a good piano player and could, could, could have made a good stand-up comedian. And that other than that, he didn't necessarily have the, the biggest acting chops. He didn't necessarily, uh, you know, he wasn't the tallest guy in the room. He knew that, that uh, people had a certain vision of him and he, he was fine playing up to that. I watched a few videos as well of some of his appearances on on Carson and Letterman and some of the late night shows. And again, he just 
he looked like he was there to have fun. And it just looked so natural, particularly when you compare it to even appearances by celebrities today on those shows. This just seemed like natural fun conversation between him and the host. And there was always just such good chemistry with him. I think he was naturally a nice guy. Um, And I'm not a Midwesterner. So I say this only because this is what people tell me about the Midwest. Um, But I think, you know, he, he did sort of present himself in, in conversation with people and meeting people in, 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 when he was not on stage, he presented himself with, with what, you know, Americans sort of think of as that typical Midwestern, easy to get along with, humble, funny, you just, you go with the flow, you don't take yourself too seriously. Um, And I I think on uh, sort of to add a, a even more complex layer, Liberace is one of those celebrities who was not naturally a a huge extrovert. Um, And so putting on that stage persona, I think, insulated and protected him. I think he got bigger and bolder and crazier the, the longer he did it because it did protect his personal life and his personal self um it was a little bit of armor it was pink turkey feather armor there's no question that he lived a very lavish lifestyle and he he really did flaunt it with the the publicity and and what he shared of himself in that when he would go on a show like carson he'd show up wearing a a a 25 pound sequined suit and giant diamond rings and and he had films of him uh, swimming in the the piano shaped swimming pool and and riding around in his one of his many rolls royces but it, it it's so odd i feel like if somebody did that today where they were flaunting their their wealth on social media everybody would hate them when i watch these videos of liberace and i see these photos of him I'm not mad at the guy. In fact, I I, I really kind of love him for it. <laughs> Liberace uh, did a did a wonderful job of of bringing people in, and and truly, it's that it's that idea of capitalism of of make everyone think that they can be a part of this uh, if if they if they be your friend if they like you if they follow this lifestyle everyone can can have this too liberace was the master at that and and i i I don't say that cynically i mean i i think he really was i think he he knew how to make people feel welcome and he was so generous and i think that that's something that did help i think people uh, intrinsically saw like, yeah, this guy has got seven houses and one of them's got a piano shaped pool and, and one of them has like a, a gold leafed bathtub, but his mom lives with him and he donates money to animal rescues and he's got 27 dogs and almost all of them are rescue dogs. And he's starting a scholarship foundation. And, you know, he was, he wasn't stingy. He wasn't, um, he was certainly boastful, but in a way that made you feel like, well, he's telling us this because he wants us to be in on it. Um, and in fact, 
I, the other aspect of it, and I cannot take credit for this, uh, there's a biography that came out uh, like in 2000, uh, Liberace and American Boy by uh, Darden Asbury Pyron uh, that looks at Liberace and his legacy. And, and the title sort of speaks to what it's about. It's this idea that he is truly that first, second generation American immigrant story of success and you stay a little humble because your parents made it very clear how hard they worked to get there. And uh, yeah, you've got a little bit of that new money and, and maybe you don't always make the wisest investing decisions, but you're really just doing it because you have accomplished this American dream that, that whether it's real or not, we, we all think it is. It's been nearly three decades since the world lost one of the most influential rap and hip-hop artists of all time, the legendary Tupac Shakur. On a September night in 1996, Tupac was shot while sitting in a car at a stoplight at the corner of Flamingo Road and Koval Lane, just east of the Las Vegas Strip. He died in hospital just six days later. The case has remained unsolved for the last 27 years, and the circumstances surrounding the murder have been shrouded in uncertainty and speculation, with multiple theories floating around on who killed Tupac. Back on episode number 163 of the podcast, I was joined by Kathy Scott, the author of the book, The Killing of Tupac Shakur, which is considered to be one of the best books ever written on the subject. At the time of the shooting, Kathy was working as a reporter at the Las Vegas Sun, and she was one of the first people in the world to report Tupac's death. Kathy and I discussed the case in depth, and one of the things that absolutely baffled me was the way Las Vegas Metro Police screwed up the investigation into the murder, pretty much right from the start. If it weren't so sad, it would be comical. But the, the thing about the... Grant, you know, the MGM Grant in that video of, of Tupac and Suge and the other guys kicking and beating on Orlando. Um, Suge Knight was on probation for something out of, I think it was out of LA. They got him on that. You know, they got, they got him for, you can't go pouncing on somebody when you're on probation. So he, he, for participating in that Orlando Anderson, who, who's the shooter, walked away. But um, the thing about it is Orlando Anderson was interviewed, talked to, and you can see it on the videotape. I'm sure you you can go online and see the videotape of, of the beat, beat down and then, and then Orlando talking afterward to um, uh, police. By the way, that videotape was leaked. It wasn't something the police presented to the public. It was leaked. And then after it was leaked, the uh, police, Las Vegas police didn't know who Orlando was. They didn't even know his name because the security didn't take his name. And then a police officer with Metro talked to him as well. And you can see that in the video. He did not do an incident report. It's just a little incident report. I mean, you, they do incidents reports and they didn't do one. So, so they had to contact. So Metro had to contact Compton 
PD gang cops and say, hey, who is this in the video? And they go, that's that's Orlando, little Lando um, Anderson, who's a gangbanger in uh, in in uh, Compton and his uncle is uh Keefe D who's, who was a big wig at the time in the, in the uh, uh, Crips gang street gang. So it, it, it's almost, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Something else that I found really interesting too, with this was the way the police interacted with the media in this story in that they, they treated the media in this almost with a, a combative or confrontational attitude as opposed to asking for the public's assistance or asking for the media assistance or trying to get the help out. It was, they were butting heads with the media pretty much right from the start on this. They wanted the media have nothing to do with it. Yeah. They wanted it to go away and that isn't how you make it go away. So the interesting thing is, you know, there's no paparazzi in Las Vegas. It's not like, Los Angeles where they hang out and they don't let them do that. Nobody's ever done it. I, maybe it's from the mob days, but there's no paparazzi here. So, but you had a lot of reporters, sports reporters, um, TV people, um, and magazine people. Rolling Stone was in town to cover the, um, the fight. And I, um, I met with the Rolling Stone reporter because he couldn't he couldn't get in to see homicide. So I just drove him there, introduced him to the homicide cop. He called later and and left me a message on my recorder and said, don't you ever do that to me again. I'm not talking to the national media. And and when he when that sergeant came in one day that first week and there were 300 messages on his recording uh, you know, back in the days when we had telephone recorders for messages, he turned off his recorder and he didn't return calls. So I was reporting like crazy. So reporters from back East and, and everywhere else, they were calling me um, to see what was going on. <clears throat> so Kevin Powell, who was with, um, and Kevin's done a, books and everything else since, but, um, Kevin Powell was with Rolling Stone. He was the, it was a gift I gave him. <laughs> and he was the only national reporter to, uh, he came out first in Rolling Stone with a story because nobody else could get any information at all. So the, the sergeant sat down with him for 30 minutes, but my God, was he ticked off at me for that. But, you know, I'm proud of moments like that when, you know, we can we can kind of circumvent them when they, you know, you I love a challenge. You want to shut me down. I'll go up sideways under whatever I, you know, I have a lot of sources in the police department and and county and city when I was in a reporter in Las Vegas. And so I was able to get get things. Sometimes they didn't like me very much. But, you know, when something happens, it's, it's not a popularity contest. You're reporting the news and they're trying to shut you down from covering it. And they um, it, it didn't work. It made them. I mean, kind of look pitiful, don't you think? Las Vegas's history is jammed full of so many incredible stories about the mob and their involvement in the city. But on episode number 154 of the podcast, we went in-depth on a story that a lot of people aren't all that familiar with. 
Benny Binion hailed from a small town in Texas that doesn't even exist anymore, eventually rising up to become a kingpin of the Las Vegas casino scene and going on to create a legacy that's lasted well beyond his death in the late 1980s. Jeff Schumacher, vice president of exhibits and programs at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas, took time to jump on the show with me and have a conversation about Binion and how he managed to enter the Las Vegas casino world. The first place he stopped was the Las Vegas Club, and this was on Fremont Street. Not a big place, but you know it did good business. And at this point, this is where you see the first signs of Benny's uh, wisdom as a casino operator. He increased the betting limits, you know, to allow people to bet bigger amounts. Uh, he also increased the pay for the dealers. He wanted these dealers to be honest and he wanted them to be loyal. And so he did a couple of things at the Las Vegas club that were very smart and that would become part of his, you know, part of his MO going forward. Um, things didn't last at the Las Vegas club for too long because the, uh, the his other partners decided to move the bill, move the club across the street on the other side of Fremont. And at that point, they uh, kind of pushed Benny out of that operation. So a year or two later, Benny got involved with the Westerner. Westerner, not a very famous casino in Las Vegas, but it was operating in 1949 and Benny got involved. But in this case, Benny did not get along, did not see eye to eye with his partners. The partners, Benny was used to being the boss. And when, at the Westerner, he couldn't be the, you know, the the one person making all the decisions. So he ended up uh, dropping out of the Westerner. And then he went in search of his own casino. Enter the horseshoe. <laughs> uh, in 1951, Benny buys the shuttered El Dorado Club. So the El Dorado Club was a place that had had a couple different names on Fremont Street, uh, but it had been closed. And it was Benny's opportunity to buy it cheap because it was closed. So he buys the El Dorado Club. And then uh, above and adjacent to the El Dorado Club is the Apache Hotel. It's in the same building. And he leases the building. So he's now got the Apache Hotel and he has the El Dorado Club. And Benny renames this the Binion's Horseshoe. The Horseshoe. And uh, he goes to the gaming board. He's like fully expecting to... Uh, be granted a, a gaming license, and he is rejected. They're like, no, you're a, you're a racketeer and a gangster from Dallas. We don't want anything to do with you. So what Benny ends up doing is he brings in another person, a, a beard or a front man, uh, Dr. Monty Bernstein. And Monty Bernstein is someone who, uh, you know, he was a big gambler, uh, so that's how he knew Benny. Uh, but he's the person who has put up to put to get the the license for to run the Binion's Horseshoe, and at that point, ben, Benny had a pretty interesting title. His his title was bar and restaurant manager, <laughs> and um, so that's how Benny really ran the uh, Horseshoe at first. Uh, but ben, Binion was absolutely committed to getting his license, and so he starts handing out money, bribes, if you will, to officials, uh, government officials. Um, and he also develops a friendship with a man named Senator Pat McCarran. Pat McCarran was the most powerful politician in Nevada, and he was very supportive of the growth of the gambling industry, no matter who was running it, the casinos. And between that and that, uh, and Benny's, Benny's efforts to gain favor in the state, 
in Dece- on December 1st, 1951, he got his license, his gaming license. There was a tax commission hearing at the, the federal building on Stewart Avenue. If that sounds familiar, that's because that's the Mob Museum building today. Right. And uh, Benny uh, put on a show. He, <laughs> Boy, he said some interesting things. They asked him about the murders. They asked him about different criminal things he was involved in. And Benny was just an aw shucks, make, you know, making everybody laugh kind of guy. And um, then there were others who testified on his behalf as well. So he ended up getting the license on a unanimous vote. So at that point, Benny now, you know, is able to run the casino the way he wants and with his name on it. And, you know, he brought in, he introduced a bunch of innovations uh, to the casino. And one of the first things he did was he put carpet in the casino in downtown Las Vegas. He was really the first one to do that. Uh, and there was the places on Fremont Street were kind of known as the sawdust joints, right? The sawdust meaning these were places that didn't have carpet, but they were they were you could you know uh, they were kind of a mess is what they were. They were very rustic, and so Benny knew from his experience with the high end place he had in Dallas that if you put carpet in there and make it into a nice luxurious place, that people will appreciate that. Another thing he did is he offered high table limits. So this was risky because, you know, if you if people win a lot, you've got to pay out. You've got to be prepared to pay out. But uh, Benny was not too worried about that. So he he thought that if you have high limits, people are more likely to gamble more, of course. And you're also going to attract more people who can afford to bet more. And that's exactly what happened. The um, you know, Horseshoe became the place to go to gamble even though it was downtown, if you were a serious gambler, that's where you would go. Yeah. Some of the stories that I read about the, the, the bets that were placed at the horseshoe in some of those early days were pretty fascinating because it was people that were walking in and sitting down at the blackjack table with a hundred thousand dollars. And, and his whole rule was, I don't care how much you're betting as long as you're betting. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, 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 you know, I think Benny had sort of the, the way to get money, like if he did have to pay out, he could figure out how to pay out. Some of these other gambling operators probably didn't have that kind of money. They didn't have access to the money that he had. So to be fair, he was in a better position to offer these high limits than some of the other small casinos. But I mean, it was smart. It, it, it was a marketing you know, work of genius. And it really is kind of silly to think that something as small as putting carpet in the casinos is such a a huge innovation. I mean, we've talked before about Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo and how air conditioning in the hotel was such a huge, a huge yeah. advertising thing for, for Betty Binion to say, I'm putting carpet in and have it be like, okay. <laughs> and, and for that person to have been that innovative, for that to be Benny, who spent most of his time on horses out on ranches uh, is pretty interesting, right? There were all these urbane, uh, you know, business entrepreneurs who had these other casinos and they didn't think of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was Benny who uh, who had learned from his experience that that's the thing to do. Something else that I read, too, about his innovations was he was one of the first or if not the first to offer comp drinks to people other than the high rollers. I mean, it, it's pretty common standard. Now you sit down at a casino, you put some cash in a slot machine and you've got a server that comes over to you and says, would you like something to drink? But at that time, that was not a thing. No, you're right. And, uh, you know, Benny saw customers as people 
He saw them as important, as vital to the success of his business. And he saw the opportunities that you could, uh, it's like, it's really a small thing in most cases to offer somebody a drink. If you know, they're going to blow four times that amount of money that the drink costs you in the slot machine or on the poker table or whatever. And it was, you know, it was common sense to him, but you know, it was something that was very innovative for Las Vegas. The very first WrestleMania was held at New York City's Madison Square Garden on March 31st, 1985. The event was the brainchild of then WWF owner Vince McMahon and played host to roughly 19,000 people at the Garden with over a million people across the U.S. watching via closed circuit television. In the years following, WrestleMania would become the longest running and most successful pro wrestling event in history, even setting attendance records with crowds of over 100,000 people cramming into stadiums to watch the show. In 1993, nine years after that first WrestleMania, the WWF decided to try their luck on Caesars Palace in Las Vegas with what was planned to be the most opulent WrestleMania ever. There were elephants, chariots, Roman gladiators, and even an appearance from Cleopatra and Julius Caesar himself. But despite all that, WrestleMania 9 is often regarded as the worst WrestleMania of all time. Which brings us to episode number 147 of the podcast and my conversation with Mark Hoke, the host of The Mark Hoke Show, the number one rated pro wrestling radio show in Las Vegas. 2013 marked the 30th anniversary of WrestleMania 9, and I thought it would be fun to revisit the event and have a conversation about the show, particularly the state of the WWF at that time in the company's history. You saw at that time they had just managed to add some new talent in there too. But they were but they were they were shaky there for like around WrestleMania. WrestleMania eight, nine was a little bit rough. Mm-hmm. They they pulled it together at ten, obviously. Yeah. This ten was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think they were still kind of trying to figure things out and you know, which way do we want to go? Do we want to go a, a Bret Hart type way, a Shawn Michaels type way, or do we st- stay in the world of Hulkamania. And you could tell that they honestly hadn't made up their minds at that point. (laughs) Spoiler (laughs) alert. Because it was a (laughs) WrestleMania nine was weird. Yeah. Um, You know, the outdoor venue was good and bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, obviously you, you say Caesar's palace and, and especially back 30 years ago, you know, you're like, you know, the fight capital of the world, and that's where a lot of the big fights happen at Caesar's Palace. You say that name, and you think big fight feel. Yeah. And so I think that was part of what they were going for on that. Um, it was funny when it, you know, when I went went back and watched. I I didn't. I'll be honest. I didn't watch every minute, but when I did did watch, you know, you you, you kind of saw the setting, and it was it it was okay. Yeah. Um. But, you know, you're doing outdoors in Las Vegas, and the one thing about doing outdoors events in Las Vegas is it gets windy here. Yes, especially that time of the and, year. And yeah. you can you can kind of see it at points yeah. that the wind was just whipping through, you know, but the crowd was but the crowd was pretty hot. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't a huge crowd like you would expect at a WrestleMania today, but it was they were still pretty fired up, mm-hmm. which was which was good to see for the event. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely a, an interesting setting for WrestleMania. And as you say, it was a, a weird time because they were in that weird state of flux where they they were they were bringing in um Again, you had Shawn Michaels and you had Bret Hart at that event, but you also had Hulk Hogan, um, a, a considerably smaller Hulk Hogan. Obviously, this was post yeah. post steroid allegations. So yeah. you kind of wonder if maybe they were, hey, Hulkster, you know, lay off the, the bodybuilding a little bit just a touch. We want to make it not look so much like that maybe even if he was clean it was like mm, just maybe a little bit um but yeah very different time for the wwf yeah and it's funny like when you look down at this card you can kind of see how they were trying to decide what they wanted to be i mean you you know mm-hmm. you you look at people on the card you, know, you still had tito santana but bob ba- i forgot bob Backlund was on this card <laughs> me too <laughs> i actually went to north dakota state and bob Backlund was a national champion wrestler in north dakota oh, state okay yeah. division two so i'd like yeah. i'd go in the wrestling room and i'd see his name on the wall and everything yeah. but you you know you had him you you had you know tech guys like ted dibiase were on there you had luger and perfect even though luger was doing his narcissist thing yeah and then you, know, you got Bret Hart, you know, but then you've also got Papa Shango. Yeah. You got the Head Shrinkers, which yeah. you know, were a serious team, but still, a, you know, real character, mm-hmm. you know, carrying on the Samoan line. Yeah. Crush. Yeah. Doink. Uh, you know, Erwin R. Scheister. You took Mike Rotunda and you turned him into the the tax man the world's most dangerous accountant yeah <laughs> giant, giant gonzalez is on the card and yeah. of course the undertaker is kind of the one that crosses the whole thing yeah so it was a weird mix of serious top flight technical wrestlers and your ultimate cheese balls yeah. of wwe Overall, I mean, again, you know, this it's this is often called the worst WrestleMania of all time. But I even if that's the case, I still found it entertaining overall with the whole show. I'd probably give it a three out of five. Yeah, I, I'm still in the I'm still overall in the two range on it because it just wasn't. Uh, I mean, in the moment, like I said, there was some there were some good points. But just there were so many unsatisfying finishes to matches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's you you wouldn't see that in a WrestleMania today. No, no, no way that, you know, all the count, the count outs, the DQs and everything else just would never happen. Um, You know, and the venue was a little shaky. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, there was just there were so many flaws on this on this WrestleMania. And unfortunately, it's kind of why it went to the dustbin a little bit and you know especially then you came back wrestlemania 10 and mm-hmm. yeah know, woo <laughs> fix that stuff up in a hurry didn't they las vegas bills itself as the entertainment capital of the world and it's easy to see why with all the big names performing up and down the strip on a nightly basis but how did that all come to be And what role did organized crime play in making it happen? My guest on episode number 151 of the podcast joined me to help clear things up on that front. 
Making her second appearance on the show was Claire White, Director of Education for the Mob Museum. Now, Claire and I briefly touched on the mob and their place in Vegas's entertainment history during our conversation about Liberace in episode number 140 of the podcast. But I thought it might be fun to bring Claire back to go a little more in-depth on this subject. We covered a lot of ground during our conversation, but one of the things I really wanted to know was just how deep did the mob ties go during the early days of entertainment in Las Vegas? From the beginning, the mob has uh, a essentially a, a, a ground floor stake in, in booking uh, entertainment in casinos. Uh, Major Riddle is one early example. So he himself is not technically a mobster, uh, but he's involved in illegal nightclubs in Indiana and Illinois in the 30s and 40s. Uh, he has connections to the Chicago outfit. And um, in 1956, uh, he purchases uh, the Dunes uh, using loans from the Teamster Pension Fund. Uh, so, you know, I mean, you, you can't really get more mob than that without being truly a made man and doing the finger prick and all that. He hadn't done that. But save that part of the of the pomp and circumstance. He's, he's organized crime. Um, <laughs> uh, he brings the first topless review, Minsky's Follies, to the Dunes in 1957. And, you know, showgirls and, and reviews are a little different than, than headliners, which I think is a lot of what we're talking about today. But those shows matter also because, you know, you, you can't see Elvis or Louis Armstrong or Frank Sinatra every night. Um, so if you're in Vegas for a week, you you're probably going to have a few nights where you're not seeing any shows. You're probably going to have one night where you see one of the big headliners. And then you're probably going to fill out one of the other, you know, a couple other nights with these smaller lounge acts or a showgirl review or something like that. Um, and, you know, the mob just becomes more and more entrenched in the entertainment side of things. Uh, first, as like actual entertainment bookers, uh, Johnny Roselli, who I have a feeling we'll talk quite a lot about in a moment. Um, he was involved with uh, entertainment booking across Las Vegas uh, for a number of years. And as time goes by, the role of the entertainment booker, the, that job, like literally the job of like director of entertainment or director of booking or director of, you know, um, food, beverage and amenities, things like that. Uh, that job became a really clever way to keep mobsters with criminal records on the casino floor without them having to qualify for an individual gaming license. So probably the my favorite example, and one of the best examples of that is Frank Lefty Rosenthal. Um, who was he's the um, he's the Robert De Niro character in Casino for for those who know mob movies better than mob history. Um, <laughs> Rosenthal was the person in charge of the skim for the Chicago outfit at the Stardust, the Hacienda, the Marina, and the Fremont. Um, he also was a sports gaming pioneer. Uh, the Stardust sports book was 100% thanks to Rosenthal. But at no point when he was at the Stardust was his title pit boss. He wasn't ever director of gaming. You didn't know he had anything to do with the sports book. He was 
for most of his time, um, and I'm not certain his, his exact official title, uh, but he was the director of entertainment. Uh, he booked in, he booked in in air quotes entertainment for the Stardust um, and the other properties uh, managed by the Chicago Outfit. Um, he he actually, I mean. His his whole persona in Las Vegas was kind of like this of, of the entertainment guy. He was out at nightclubs all the time. He had a public access television show in which he interviewed performers and casino executives and showgirls. Um, and, you know, he did this because they needed him on site. But he would have never qualified for um, his own personal gaming license. Um, to to use another great example, in the 1970s, from 77 to 79, the executive producer of the Foley's Berger Showgirl Review at the Tropicana was a Kansas City mobster named Joe Augusto, also uh, the overseer of the skim, just at the trop instead of <laughs> instead of the suite of Rosenthal's properties, and you know Augusto had. No dance experience. He didn't have any um, executive production experience with Broadway shows or anything like that. He was there because that was the job they could put him in that would would place him where he needed to be without needing a gaming license. Now, I seem to recall maybe it was Augusto or maybe it was it was Rosenthal. I can't remember which one, but one of them spent a lot of time going to the showgirl show. It, it must have been Augusto. And would sit there and then would go backstage and critique the show afterwards to the dancers and the performers. And like you say, no experience, no entertainment experience at all, but would go to every show and would give notes. And and I mean, bless their hearts for taking their entertainment job as seriously as they did. <laughs> Uh, yes. So that is definitely Augusto. Uh, that, that, I, that's not to say that none of these other guys also <laughs> took that, <laughs> that clear of a role, but I, but I imagine the story you've heard is Augusto because that's, that's a pretty common, um, anecdote attributed to him. You know, I think it was, it was a couple things. It was, first of all, that running the skim is important and does take work and does take intelligence, but it's not happening every day. I mean, if you oversee the skim, all you have to do is a couple days a week, check the count room a couple days a week, plan routes for, you know, money traveling in and out of the property. It's not a, it's not a 40 hour a week job per se. Um, and so he did, he had the time. Um, and you know, I, I don't, think that that would be that terrible of a job for a man who's spent his life working in the company of a lot of rough other men. I think he was more than happy to spend his time with with some very talented, uh, far more refined ladies. And, you know, he um, I think he had genuine, sincere interest in the success of the show, as well as probably inappropriate interest in <laughs> in some of the beautiful individuals who worked for him i'm sure <laughs>
Thanks for joining me on this little podcast journey back in time. And I hope you enjoyed revisiting all these conversations about Las Vegas history. If you want to check out the complete episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. 